that we want to see you. We, we recognize that the spiritual dynamic is that we see with our ears as we hear the Bible taught, we see Jesus. And so I pray now that your spirit would help us. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please do take a seat. And if you've got a Bible there, I would be delighted if you found uh, Hebrews chapter 5. So if you're in one of the church's Bibles, Steve might bring you one. If you need one, just put a hand up and Steve will bring it to you. It's on page 1204, page 1204, Hebrews chapter 5. And we're going to look from sentence 1 to sentence 6, that first kind of block in what's called Hebrews chapter 5. If you remember, this is a transcribed speech, a, a church sermon of such potency and power that they decided to write it down and preserve it for all time uh, because its message remains relevant for everybody. If you look just before our section, you'll see what the main, if you like, application, the main life truth that's in it is uh, chapter 4 sentence 14 at the end it says let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess to hold firm to it um, I don't know if you've ever been on an aeroplane. Some of us have the privilege, some of us haven't. You might have seen it on TV. But when the plane hits some serious turbulence. Now, this happened on the way back uh, from India when I was flying back from Delhi to Heathrow. Uh, and the plane hit that kind of turbulence. It isn't just shaking you around. is isn't just your orange juice gets a bit splashed onto your leg. is isn't just that the, the sign pings and it says put your seatbelt on. This was the kind of turbulence when the hosts and hostesses charged down the aisleway to get themselves bolted into their own seats. I used to travel a lot in a, in a different life. I used to fly a lot and you always knew it was serious when the hostesses started to strap themselves in. Now I'd got myself, um, uh, I'd asked and they'd given me that front row seat by the emergency exit for the little bit of leg room. That's great, isn't it? That's, I love that seat. Um, but it meant I'm right opposite the hostess or the host in this case. Uh, and, and he came charging down and we're all like this. We're flying all over the place and everyone's... And he put himself in his seat. He put his lap belt on and then he un, un, detached the five-point harness belt and clipped that on as well. And I thought, okay, well, this is serious now, isn't it? And I'm looking at this little loose thing around my lap and he's like bolting himself in like this. And we're flying all over the place left, right and centre. Now there's a number of ways that you can, you can react in that moment. I love the chap about three or four seats along from us. He was checking his share prices to see the inheritance his children might get. That's what he was doing down there. Now, for some reason, I was fairly slightly detached from it all and was just sitting there kind of looking around wondering what was happened. The people either side of me were gripping on with all their might to their armrests, like absolutely white knuckled, like their forearms cramping, just like that, holding on tight like that. Now, in the, the random clear mind that I had at this moment, I, I looked over and I thought, really, really? If we plummet from 30,000 feet in X tens tons of metal cigar tube into a raging ocean, really holding the armrest is going to make a difference? Really? <laughs> of course it's not, is it? See, when, when the Bible talks about hold fast, and actually on that aeroplane, that scenario, what it means to hold fast is not actually about what you do, your physical response in that moment. It's turbulence and thrown around. It's actually about a, a, a reviewing, a recycling of what you know. What's most helpful in that situation on the plane is not gripping onto some hand rest, as if that will make any difference, and the strength of your biceps. You've got a massively over-egged uh, image of yourself if you think your biceps can stop a plane falling out of the sky, haven't you? It's not what you do externally. It's what you remember to be true. The, the quality of the engineering that's gone into that airplane 
the level of training and expertise that the pilot, in this case a lady, an Indian lady, has had to allow her to captain such an airplane. The, the historical reality, the statistical evidence that flight is the safest way to travel there is. That's what holding fast means in that situation, isn't it? It is pointless just to grip on like this. What you need to do is remind yourself of the what and the who of the situation. Now, when the Bible says things like it does here, hold fast to the faith, and actually this is the third time that phrase, hold fast, has been used in chapter 3 and 4, hold fast, it does not mean our ability to hold on to Jesus, but it means the ability, remind yourself of the ability and the accomplishment of the thing you're holding on to. Does that make sense? Remind yourself who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Hold fast to that. In sentences one to six of chapter five, he introduces us to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done with the image of a high priest, a categories borrowed from the Old Testament of high priest. He wants us to realize that as we realize what it means that Jesus is this perfect high priest, we can hold fast even in the worst turbulence of life getting thrown at us. Let me read these sentences to you and see what you make of them. Don't worry if they're a bit confusing at first. My job is to move from confusion to clarity. So hopefully in about 25 minutes, 20 minutes, where any confusion will have become clear. This is what they say. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, a high priest, which is the image that's here, a high priest in the Old Testament, and for them, it's unusual to us, isn't it, was a mediator that brought reconciliation, but normally at great cost to themselves. Someone a little bit like Terry Waite. Do some of you remember Terry Waite? So in the 80s and 90s, he's still alive today, he's in his late 80s now, but in the 1980s and 1990s, he was the Archbishop's envoy and he negotiated a number of captive releases, hostages to be released. I think three or four times he went to various war-torn areas and, and negotiated a release. And then in 1987, he went to Lebanon to negotiate the, the release of John McCarthy and three other American journalists. But because of a, a media leak about a connection that Terry Waite had with the American military, he himself was taken captive and for four years, mostly in solitary confinement, was held as a hostage. In a sense, that's the kind of idea of a high priest in the Old Testament. A mediator, someone who's ready to try and seek a reconciliation, to solve a problem, but at great personal cost to themselves. Let me give you the structure of this high priest kind of language and see where we're being taken. If you look closely, you'll see sentences one to four talk about what a human Old Testament priest was like, describes where they came from and what their job was, a human Old Testament priest. And then from sentence five, it says, what about Jesus? In the same way, how does knowledge about being an Old Testament priest help us understand who Jesus is in his high, test, high priest kind of role. 
And if you look a little bit closely, you'll see that when it comes to Jesus, he is both the same as those Old Testament high priests and different. He's the same because sentence five, it says, in the same way. Do you see that? There's, there are things about Jesus which are the same as an Old Testament high priest would do. But then if you look at sentence six, it says, but you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was an Old Testament hero who was kind of like the, the Hulk of high priests. He was kind of like the, the Wonder Woman of high priests. He was the best and most powerful and most potent high priest there could be. In fact, as well as being a priest, he was a king of a great nation. And we're told in chapter 7, we'll look at Melchizedek in detail over the next few weeks, we're told in chapter 7 that even a great hero like Abraham worshipped Melchizedek and gave gifts to Melchizedek. So what the author's saying here is both Jesus in some ways is the same, in the same way he's like an Old Testament high priest, but in other ways he's in a whole different category, like Melchizedek was. He's in a whole different order of excellence and awesomeness. Now I just want to pull into a lay-by just for a moment, because some of us might be saying, well, Alex, why do we have to spend time getting our minds around this idea of a high priest. It's really foreign to us. This is Stafford in England in 2017. High priest language is hard. Why can't we just imagine Jesus as a coach or an advocate or, or as a friend or some of these categories that exist in our old culture today? Why do we have to do the, the mental gymnastics of understanding high priest? Does anyone have that question? Someone nods, so I know that someone might have that question. I have that question. And I think the reason is, you see, is God has given us categories to understand Jesus. In the Old Testament, 2,000, 3,000 years of Old Testament history, because actually any other culture, any other time, its images are deficient in some way. Now, I'm a huge fan of translating Jesus into modern language. I think it's very, very important, particularly when you're trying to create the environment for people to meet him for the very first time. But actually, as we grow in following Jesus, I actually think it's very, very important to invest time in the Old Testament, invest time in New Testament books like Hebrews, which are full of this kind of Old Testament imagery, because these are the better categories the clearer categories, the more accurate categories of who Jesus is. It's a little bit like when you get on an airplane and you're only six years old, your parents, to reassure you, might show you the Lady Word book of aircraft design. It's only got seven pages and each page has only three words on it and it's, it's big and it's bold and it's simple. But actually, when you're 35 and have a degree yourself and life experience, will that Lady Bird book really serve you? Surely it's time you, remove, you moved up to the aviation manual that has the schematics in of detail, if you really want to know how a plane works. So it is, you see, as we grow in Jesus. It might be right to begin with the very simple language of borrowing our culture's imagery of a coach or a CEO or something like that. But actually, as we get older following Jesus, some of us haven't even started that journey, but as we get older, we're going to be hungry for the, for the better categories and images. And just like reading an aviation schematic takes time and effort and help, so also as we mature in the Bible, reading the Bible and getting all that there is out of it takes time and effort and help. So that's why I think it's worth thinking about this high priest imagery, which we'll do for about three or four weeks as we journey um, through Hebrews. What I want to do to finish is to look then at this contrast that we've got before us. Sentence one to four, we've got an Old Testament high priest. And then sentence five to six, we've got Jesus, who is both the same and different. 
And how does knowing Jesus as a high priest enable us to hold on tighter when the turbulence of life hits? I've split it into three. I think there's more than three. I thought three was enough for this morning. First of all, how they are recruited. Let's look at sentence one. First of all, how is a human high priest recruited? Can you see it there in your Bibles? It says, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. Do you see the words there, selected, appointed, and represent? See, the human Old Testament high priest was selected by people, appointed by people, and called to represent people. In fact, it was a very rigorous process. Israel, the nation, was divided into 12 groups, tribes they're often called. You had to belong to one of those tribes only. The other 11, you couldn't even be considered for this kind of role, only one of the 12. You had to be of only one gender. Women weren't allowed to access this particular role in uh, Israel's history at the time. You had to come from a family line that was unblemished. Um, I discovered in conversation with my granddad a few months uh, before he died, my granddad and I did a little bit of that uh, you know, understand your, your ancestors. I discovered one of my ancestors is an Irish pirate. How awesome is that? But, but what it would mean is I'd be excluded from being a high priest because of that kind of background, if that makes sense. So you have to have this, this perfect kind of lineage. You have to be physically without defect. You have to be mentally at the top of your game. And even after all of that, if you passed all of that criteria, you could only serve for one year. So it was very, very demanding But the point is, it was the best of people, appointed by people, to represent people. That was the recruitment. What about Jesus? How is he the same but different? Look at sentence five with me. In the same way, Jesus did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. He didn't self-appoint. But the people said about him. Is that what it says? No. No. But God said about him. You are my son. Today I have become your father. You see the difference? Jesus is the same in the sense that he doesn't appoint himself, just as those high priests couldn't appoint themselves, but he's totally different because he is appointed by God, not by people. In fact, it goes much richer and deeper than that. The indented little sentence here, you are my son, today I have become your father, is a quote from Psalm 2, some ancient poetry. And in the understanding of what it means to be someone's son, they knew that did not mean offspring or child. When God says to Jesus, you are my son, he's not saying you are my child, you are my offspring, like I might say about one of my boys. What it meant culturally was you are the same as me. You are the equivalent to me. You are exactly the same as me. So when the Bible says Jesus is the son of God, it does not mean he's the offspring of God, a child of God. It means he is the same as God, the equivalent as God, exactly like God. We're going to bump into Christmas, aren't we? We're going to bump into the old English language of Jesus being the only begotten son. You remember that kind of old English language, the only begotten son? Or that that God the Father begets Jesus the Son? I was trying to explain that to our boys. They thought I was talking about some French bread kind of sandwich thing. But, you know, God begets uh, the Son. You see the joke? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, thank you. that, that That English word begotten or begets, you see, it means exactly like. Let me illustrate it. Um, A beaver makes a dam, but a beaver begets another beaver. Or a a man makes a building, constructs a building, 
but he begets a son. The child is fundamentally the same in a way that the building is absolutely not. A beaver cub is fundamentally the same in a way that a dam is not. Does that, do you see? So when the Bible talks about Jesus being the only begotten son, it's not meaning he's offspring. Our Jehovah's Witness friends and colleagues need to be corrected on this. It's not that he's a child. He's exactly the same as. Now you see the difference now in recruitment. That Old Testament human high priest, yes, was the best that people could be. He was top of the pile, but he was still a person. And all he could do was represent people before God. Now, Jesus is the same, but different, because Jesus is still the high priest, but he is appointed by God as God. By God as God. And therefore, who does he represent? Jesus as the high priest doesn't represent people. He represents God. Now, do you see the difference? A human high priest approaches God with all the people behind him saying, God, would you be our friend? Could you be our friend? Jesus approaches people as God and says, be my friend. Do you see the radical difference of understanding what it means that Jesus is our high priest, the mediator between God and people? He is the same as them, but he is radically different, appointed as God, by God, to represent God. Let's look at the second of the three. I've called it their achievement, the achievement or even the purpose of the high priest. Let's look at the human high priest at the end of sentence one. It says their job was to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what they were trying to achieve. They were slaughtering animals, cows, sheep, who knows what, in an attempt that these sacrifices might appease God. And they had to do it endlessly over and over again, even for themselves. Look at sentence three. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. So this poor old high priest was caught for one whole year, 12 months, constantly in this cycle, bloody, slaughtering animals in an attempt to cover both his own sins and the people's sins. But that was his job, was to try and offer a sufficient sacrifice to appease God and make a relationship. An impossible task because even he himself was falling short. How is Jesus the same but different? Stretch your eye just down to sentence eight, if you could. Talking about Jesus, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. What he suffered, that's the Bible language for Jesus's death. That Jesus as the priest doesn't offer sacrifices, but he is the sacrifice. You see the difference? So the Old Testament high priest constantly had to bring sacrifices. Jesus is the same but different because he himself is the sacrifice. The difference being, as he offers himself, he is God himself. Can you think of a richer, fuller sacrifice? There isn't one. He's God himself, willing to sacrifice himself. What it means is no more sacrifices are needed. You ever wondered why at church, my role, part of my role is not to bring a lamb up to the front here and start gutting it in front of you all. The reason is not because some of us are squeamish in our 21st century British mentality, it's because it's not needed anymore. It's not needed. Jesus, whose sacrifice is totally, fully and completely sufficient. He doesn't bring sacrifices, he is the sacrifice. And he's the last and final one. 
So pull into a lay-by for a moment and just imagine, let me see if I can root it in everyday life. Imagine for a moment you're walking down the street tomorrow. Maybe you're walking to work, chatting to a colleague, maybe you're pushing, <coughs> pushing the buggy, maybe you're on your phone, you're walking along the street and you do or you say something which for you is horrendous. We all have different things, don't we? Different degrees. But you do or you say something which for you, you just think, that's horrendous, that is so not who I want to be. Maybe, maybe you've made a commitment never to smack your child and in anger you just lose your temper and you smack them. For you it's something that makes you just feel awful, like, terrible. What does God think about you? How does he view you at that moment? He views you with unending, infinite love, <laughs> compassion, goodness, just wants to embrace you, he cares for you, it does not in any way change how he relates to you. Because Jesus' sacrifice for that sin is already paid. It is finished. It is done. You don't have to say to God, God, will you love me even though I'm a sinner? He's done that already. All you have to say is, God, will you be just? That sin I've just committed, will you be just and recognise Jesus paid for it? And know that therefore there is no change in my relationship with you at that moment. There is no way that God can ever love you more and there is no way that God can ever love you less. Because the high priest has paid the price fully himself for all that you ever did, do or will do against God. It is done. So when the turbulence hits... Are you going to hang on with your own strength? I've got to live a better life. I've got to read my Bible more. I've got to say my prayers more. Or will you go, I'm remembering who he is and I'm remembering what he's done and no turbulence can knock me. Last and finally then, we've got the recruitment that Jesus is not appointed by people as a person. He's appointed by God as God. We've got the achievement. Jesus doesn't continually bring sacrifices. He himself is the final full sacrifice. Lastly, uh, we've got how he relates to us, how he relates to us. Look how the human high priests relate to other people. Sentence two, it says he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to witness. So the great strength of a human high priest, like a human pastor, is we're just ordinary human beings, totally able to relate to every normal human life. Yeah. What about Jesus? How is he the same but different? Well, he's the same because he was truly, fully human. Sentence 15, just earlier, chapter 4 and sentence 15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet didn't sin. So the same is true of Jesus. He can associate with our everyday life because he lived an everyday life as well. But he's also different. Sentence 6, remember it says, You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now remember who Melchizedek was. He was the Hulk of high priests. He was of a different order. It actually records in the Bible he potentially never seemed to die. He, he was so powerful. He overcame everything and everyone worshipped him. So not only is Jesus like a human high priest, he's lived our life and he can journey alongside us, the great Christmas story, Emmanuel, God with us. He is also of a different order because ultimately he has conquered death and defeated all that. He's the reigning ruling king. Not only can he empathise with us and sympathise with us, he can also overcome for us and conquer for us. You see, he's the same and he's different. Let's bring this into land. 
What this is teaching us is what it means to hold fast when the turbulence of life hits. Like how do you hold cancer? Adultery. Like real turbulence. Do you really feel what will see you through is your bicep strength on the armrest when stuff like that hits? What it means to hold fast, when the Bible calls us to hold fast, it does not mean work harder. Absolutely not. When the Bible says hold fast, it means remind yourself of the one who has worked for you. The Bible doesn't call us to do more to hold fast, but remind ourselves of what has been done. That's how we hold fast. In the plane, when the turbulence hits, we say, remind, remind ourselves of the qualifications of the pilot, of the integral structure of the airplane, of the statistical record of accidents at flight. Remind yourself of these things to hold fast in the middle of turbulence. <coughs> let me change the illustration. It's the same thing being illustrated, but let me change the imagery as we finish this morning. Um, in, in Gimli, there are some pretty steep caverns, especially as you get up in the hills. We'd call them mountains, they call them hills, but as you get up in the hills, it's really steep caverns. And we came to one, it was only about twice as wide as this room maybe, um, but it, it just went down and down and down and down. The kids were flicking stones down and it, it would take about eight or nine seconds for the stone to hit the, the bottom. So I don't know how deep that is. There'll be some mathematical equation you could work out. But they went down and down and down and down. And we had an option, either it was a four mile hike to go round it and back, or there was this bridge, rope bridge, right? <laughs> kind of, kind of, it was kind of steel cable-y, ropey bridge with wooden slats, right? And as we were walking up to it, and because we were so high up, though it was hot, it was quite cloudy, and we couldn't, I couldn't, you couldn't see the end of the bridge, it just went out across this cavern, and it had a gentle sway to it, because we were so high, right? And, and there's this bridge, and so I'm walking now with Naraj and three or four of his colleagues, and they're all just walking along like this, and I thought, I can't show it, I can't show it, but it's like, I was like, Proper, like, really? Really? And we got to the bridge, and, and I'll, I'm happy to admit it, I held on so tight, so tight, while trying to disguise it, so you couldn't tell from the outside that every muscle in my body was tensing as we walked across this bridge. But as I was walking across, all these kids, two-year-olds, eight-year-olds, six-year-olds, they're just running past me. You know as kids do, you know, bashing your hip as they're just, just running past. This like six, seven-year-old like does this knee slide along the bridge like this, like this. And I suddenly thought, Alex, what are you doing? Like these people who have walked this bridge three times, four times a day, every day of their entire lives for decades and decades, this bridge has never let them down. Why are you gripping it like mad as if your grip could make any difference at all? Just trust what you know to be true. So I kind of let go and, go, <laughs> and, and what? But you, you see the difference there? Now what was interesting is as I walked across, trying to look all confident, no longer holding on, kind of say, look, the bridge is going to hold my weight, you know, etc. As I walked, I tripped, right, and, and stumbled up the bridge. <laughs> yeah. The bridge still held. Made absolutely no difference to the bridge whether I was holding on or not. The bridge still held. Even when I couldn't stand up, the bridge still held. It made no difference how hard I held it or not. The bridge held. That's what the Bible means when it says hold fast. 
It doesn't mean work harder at the effort of holding on. It means remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he has done. And today, remind yourself of this amazing category that God has given us to understand Jesus better, the category of a high priest. A high priest who is God himself. So he's not representing people to God. He is representing God to people. A high priest who doesn't bring sacrifices, but is the sacrifice. A high priest who not only knows what it is to be human, but is himself God and so can both sympathise and overcome. That's what it means to hold fast. Let me pray for us before Johnny closes us in a song this morning. Jesus, I thank you that you are our perfect high priest. We thank you that you choose to represent God to us and make a way through your own death for us to know God. We thank you that you know every human trial and difficulty and you know the power and might of being the sovereign Lord. This is amazing and incredible and phenomenal. Father, I pray you'd rescue us from thinking we hold fast to you through what we do and free us to hold fast to you because we know what you have done. Help us, even if we feel like we've stumbled, we've fallen, to know that you still hold us. The bridge is solid. And help us, Lord Jesus, to delight in having a high priest who would do all of this just for us so that we might be called children of God. So I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Use this song to capture some of that truth. I think we'll take our offering. We haven't done that yet, have we, this morning? So if you'd like to give financially to the work of the church on a Sunday, then we'll do that now as well. So let's stand and we'll sing together.